Welcome to the Grace Hill Podcast, a weekly podcast of our Sunday messages driven by our pastor. Grace Hill exists to bring God's biblical truth to your everyday life. As we begin this week's message, we invite you to open your Bibles and capture what God has in store for you today. So if you were with us last week, we started our series called Thankful, and we talked about being thankful and contentment and learning to be content with with any situation that we're walking through, the good or the bad, or either well-fed or hungry, right? And we talked through Paul's words of learning to be content and talked about how contentment is a learned behavior, but that we can be thankful for that moment of contentment. So we're going to continue this week talking about being thankful. And, and we've kind of had a theme of the day running through things where we've been talking about being thankful for the cross. So we're going to, we're going to jump into that in just a moment. But, but have you ever had one of those gifts that you were so thankful for that you just were rendered speechless, right? And, you, and you're given and you're like, I don't even know what to say. And somebody gives it to you and you're just like, oh, man, I remember being a kid and I wanted everything more than everything else in the world, right? Like I wanted this more than anything in my whole life. And having those moments where you say, if you give me this, I'll never ask for anything again because as a child, you don't think to like, oh, I'm gonna have basic essential needs like food and shelter and love, right? You know, like if you give me this, you don't even have to love me anymore, right? That's kind of the mindset of a child. They don't think in those terms exactly, but when you... Think about it. You go, that's what you're telling me is that you're not going to ask for anything ever again. Yep. You can ignore me the rest of your life because you bought me a skateboard, right? Or whatever the case may be. But I remember as a child wanting everything more than everything else. Like, oh, I want that more than that, but I want that more than that and that more than that. And then it circles back around, but, but I want this more than, you know, you go, man, always having this thing. And when you get it, sometimes you're like, oh man, it makes me think of the movie, A Christmas Story which is a great movie, and, and the whole, you know, you'll shoot your eye out thing, and Santa kicks the kid down the slide, because what a great Santa, you know, whatnot, but, but he wants this Red Ryder BB gun, and you know, it's that moment of every gift has been opened, and no BB gun, but there it is, just in the moment where he's about to just resign to the fact that it's not coming, and be content, right, without receiving that, and say, okay, whatever, I got these awesome bunny pajamas, I can be happy, and then there in the corner is that gift. And it's like, oh, there it is. And I had several of those moments uh, in my life growing up through Christmas times. I think it's a nation. My dad is, is awesome at always acting like there's not another gift. And we've all picked up on it at this point in time. He's been doing this now for over 30 years. And we go, hey, dad, we know that there's another gift hiding that you're waiting to give. And it usually goes for my mom, right? He'll act like, well, I didn't get her anything this year. We agreed that this was her gift. And then he'll like, boom, some piece of jewelry. And you're like, yeah, we all know it's coming, right? And we're expecting it to happen every year. But every year, my mom still has the same reaction of, and at this point, I think she needs to be nominated for an award or some sort because we all know it's happening and she still acts like, oh, I didn't even, oh, you, you got me. And I'm like, stop, we know. But we've all had those moments where you receive something that you're, you're speechless. You're like, whoa, I didn't even know this was coming. And maybe sometimes it's even the fact that you didn't even realize you wanted that. Or you didn't even realize that it was a need that you have and somebody was intuitive enough or aware enough of what you've got going on that they go, man, this is a great gift. This is something really cool. Uh, you know, it's, sometimes it's, it's the most practical thing and you go, that makes perfect sense. Why didn't I think of getting one of those myself? You know, whatever. And we have these moments in our lives where we go, man, I, that is one of the best things that I could have ever received 
and I didn't even realize I needed it in the moment. And I think that kind of sums up the idea of Paul's words that we're going to read today in 1 Timothy. And, and, and we've been on this real huge Paul kick lately. I promise I read other parts of the Bible. Uh, just thinking about it, man. But Paul's got some great words to say today as it pertains to being thankful for the cross. And, and I, I think what we see is, is Paul is expressing his gratitude towards the cross. And if we read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, and it says this, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then verse 15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, Don't you love when you get notifications? Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Forever and ever. Amen. Here's the reality. We were all once sinners, right? Yet we were saved by grace. And I've said this often in here, and this is kind of the big thought for today, the big idea that that I'm preaching is this. When we were at our worst, Jesus gave gave us his best. When we were at our worst, Jesus gave us his best. And I think we find Paul immediately just, just starting with, you know, wow, look how awful I was. But, but, but hear his thankfulness and his gratitude towards the cross today. Hear what he's expressing. He's like, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who gives me strength, who strengthens me, that he's considered me trustworthy of the calling, right? He's saying, he trusts me. And then he goes on to say, look how awful I was. I was a terrible human being. And yet Jesus, through the cross, trusts me with the calling. I've found in my life that when I begin to speak about the cross that I, I become sometimes extremely emotional and sometimes just uh, overjoyed with gratitude, right? Overwhelmed with gratitude. Because the cross, as, as, as someone who, who tries to understand it, right, we, we begin to be overwhelmed. And it's one of those things that I've found that, that we try to put it into words. We try to express it in words exactly how we feel. And I feel that I'm never fully capable, which is probably why I was never a famous songwriter of sorts, because, man, I, I just do a terrible job and butcher what I'm trying to express in that regards. Or, or maybe it's just the simple fact that as I've grown to understand my own shortcomings and failings, that it's hard to fully encompass and, and grasp exactly what I feel into words because of the grace I've been given. So today, as we enter into Thanksgiving, as we come into the week of Thanksgiving, I want us to pause and thank the Lord for the cross and the work that he did on the cross. And so let's talk through these words of Paul today. Because when we were at our worst, Jesus gave us his best. The first thing I want to talk about is this, is that we are shown mercy because of the cross. We're shown mercy. And Paul starts it this way. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, 
appointing me to his service. And we'll stop right there for a moment and kind of walk through this. He, he says, it's the same word. We, if you were here with us last week and we talked about uh, the strength and he says, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul's using the exact same word for strength there, which is this, uh, this infusion of strength from Christ. And, and in this context, it is this continual infusing, right? It's this strength that is continuing to build us up. It's this strength that is continuing to be, be poured into us, infused into our being and who we are and to the creation that God is making us. And he's saying, he recognizes his failures after this. He jumps straight into the, the mess ups and the things that he did. And I would say this, that there's probably a lot of us in this room that say, I can more closely associate with Saul than I can with Paul, right? I can associate more with, with the failures and, and, and the issues that Paul, Saul had before salvation than I can try to meet the standards in which Paul places on people after his salvation. But Paul is, is, is a humble man and recognizes who he was. And I think what we're finding is a sincere humility humility from Paul as he begins to walk through his failures. And he says, I was a, I was a persecutor. I was a blasphemer. I was a violent man. And the cool thing about the cross is this, is that he was a persecutor turned preacher. He, he was a, a murderer turned minister. Paul was a new creation in Christ. He see, he talks about being shown this mercy I think we have to have a full understanding of, of, of Paul's life and his salvation and his, his moment of, of repentance. See, the, the early church didn't accept Paul right away. It wasn't like, oh, Saul gave his heart to the Lord. Let's just welcome him in and love him. No, if you read in Acts, actually, uh, they were a little bit unsure. They're all going, hmm, sounds like a trick. He's trying to trap us. I mean, it really is the thought and the sentiment behind the early Christians. They're going, this guy's trying to infiltrate our people so that he can take names and then come back and kill all of us. That's really the thought process. They're going, uh, you know, it, we can go back to an older, an old analogy here. It would be as if in our world, say, Bin Laden was to receive Christ, which would have been an incredible story and an awesome testimony of the grace of God. But how many people would have gone, I don't believe it, Right. I think you've been very skeptical with the idea. It's the same essential uh, idea here. We have Saul, who is, in in essence, a a terrorist towards the Christian church, and coming and finding people, dragging them out, killing them, and then even forcing them to blaspheme the name of Jesus, forcing them to say they no longer believe, to renounce Christ as their Savior, and he's pushing them into this. And he's saying, I am a terrible person. This is what I did. And so the church then sees him, and they go, "Mm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about this. How many of you think about this? When you have a family member in your family that, that you go, man, they really need Jesus. You don't, they, they receive Christ and they go, hey, I need to tell you what happened. I went to church this week. Somebody led me in to the Lord. I found Jesus. You don't go, ah, we'll see about that, right? That's not the mindset that we typically take on. We typically go, wow, this is incredible. You came to know the Lord. I've been praying for you for so long. Isn't God good? And you, and you go, wow, look at the grace that God has poured out on you and the love that you've received, Right? You see, when you look at this, Paul being a Jew was in in essence family with these people. And they're going, I don't believe it. Not buying it. See, Paul was a terrible, terrible person. And that's essentially what he's trying to express here is look how bad I was. Look at the things that I did. And yet in an instant, in the very next verse, and it's an abrupt shift. And I love this because this is how Jesus works in the very next breath. He says, I was shown mercy. 
I was shown mercy. Think about that. He says, I I was shown mercy. Um, I think in our own lives, that's exactly how God operates, right? It's an abrupt shift. It's in an instant. It is instantaneous. It's in a moment when we come to the, the place of humility and recognition of our need of a Savior, the fact that we are sinners. And in an instant, we're shown mercy. It's an abrupt shift. It's an abrupt change. And I think Paul's words are, are critical in, in, his, in his placement and the way he says it because he says, I was all of these terrible things. I was shown mercy. If we look at the word uh, that, that is used to express, I was shown mercy, it's, it's one word meaning to be shown mercy, and it's, it's the Greek word, elieo, um, and I probably butchered that, but just roll with it. And it means to have pity on, to have pity on, not in the sense of, oh, you poor soul, but in the sense of, of, of wanting to help somebody who has been under affliction with a heart towards, yeah, a compassionate heart towards somebody who's been afflicted. So think about this. Jesus, who has been beaten, who has been uh, humiliated in front of people, he's been stripped naked and hanging on a cross, who is, in essence, been afflicted, who has been tormented, is hanging on the cross with pity in his heart for us, with mercy towards us, feeling compassion towards the sinner, we're shown mercy. Paul talks about it and he's saying, listen, he took pity on me. He took pity on me. And think about this, what Paul was doing in the sake, for the sake of, of uh, being against Christ and, and what he did was post-crucifixion. It is post-resurrection. This is all after the fact, yet Christ still died for him. Knowing what was to come, knowing that, that this is who Saul was going to be, this is what Saul was going to do, and yet he was still shown mercy. He was still shown mercy. Elieo, to have pity on, giving assistance to the afflicted. I think that's the beauty of the cross, is that Jesus didn't die on the cross with repulsion, right? He didn't die with a sense of, oh, why am I even here? But he died with love and with mercy in his heart, with, with compassion towards the broken, with compassion for the sinner, saying, this is the only way. This is the only way. When we were at our worst, Jesus gave us his best. I, I, I think it's great that, that Paul picks up the theme further down in, in, this, in this passage that we're reading through in verse 15. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, meaning Hear what I'm saying. This is truth. This is the real thing. Believe it. Grab it. Run with it. This is the truth. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is why he came. And then Paul says, of whom I am the worst. How many of you can say that you've had moments in your life where you go, "Mm, I feel like I'm the worst. I feel like I'm the worst. And obviously that's the work of the Holy Spirit and that's conviction pushing us saying we can be better. We need to be better. But But Paul's saying, I'm the worst of sinners. I'm the worst. He says, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, again, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. He's saying, even in my own failures, 
even in all that I am, the, the struggles that I've, I've had, the, the, the difficulties that I've walked through, the mistakes that I've made because of that, Jesus says, I can use those. I can take your mess and I can make it into a message of the gospel. I can take the, the things that you've done wrong. I can take all that you've messed up and I can use that, Paul. And I think he's saying the exact same thing to you and I. Like, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've gone through. There is that instantaneous moment where he says, I took pity on you. I died for you. And I can take your mess. I can take your brokenness. And I can use it for incredible work in the kingdom. Think about the work of Paul. Think about what Paul did in, in our world. Think about what we have now because of the ministry of Paul. See, he was the worst of sinners in some translations, he says, I am the chief of sinners. The chief of sinners. I'm the king of all sinners. You can't get worse than me. And yet, Jesus died. We're shown mercy. We're shown mercy. The second thing is this. Grace poured abundantly. Grace was poured abundantly. In verse 14, it says, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Two words right away that we need to, to highlight and talk about just so that we have clear understanding as we walk through this. First being grace, which is the Greek word, uh, uh, charis or charis, depending on who you talk to, referring to God freely extending to give himself away. That's kind of the word picture that you get is God freely extending to give himself away. I love that idea. That, that's as if, if God is, is pressing into us to give himself away, pressing into us to show us grace. I, and that's incredible. It's not a sense of keeping you at an arm's length. He's not leaning back and just barely grabbing you, barely touching you, but he's leaning into you. Think about that. I, I love that, that ideology of the word grace. And then the second word is abundantly, which, which is the, the Greek translates into exceedingly plentiful. Exceedingly plentiful. So it's not just that I have enough, right? It's not just that grace is enough, but that it's exceedingly plentiful. It's more than what we need. It's more than what we need. It's another level to have exceedingly abundantly, right? More. So right away, we see that the grace of Jesus is given in a way that is exceedingly abundant, right? His grace is given. It's almost that sense of like, uh, you see somebody win the lottery and then they're broke two years later, right? Because they, they were giving away in, in an exceedingly abundant way or spending in a way that was felt that it was exceedingly abundant. And you go, what just happened? This guy made, you know, $500 million and three years later, they're filing bankruptcy. What in the world is going on, right? These things happen, right? Because they think in the terms of like, well, I'm like Jesus with money, right? Except that it's a limited resource. See, on the flip side of that, Jesus has an unlimited supply of grace. Man, it, that in and of itself is enough to just go, thank you. Thank you. I know this for a fact that there doesn't, there's not a day that goes by, there's not a week that goes by, there's not a moment that goes by in which I don't need grace. If I ever get to a place where I feel that I have made it, I am righteous enough on my own, then I have failed Jesus. We need his grace. And Paul says, it was poured out on me abundantly. 
Paul's saying, remember what I did. (laughs) Remember all the things that I went through. Now look at the grace that he has given me. Look at the grace he has given me. And that's why Paul also said, he says, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. It's the same idea that, yeah, you have that sin. Well, look, you get this much grace over that. It's incredible. Now, remember this just to keep our our theology and doctrine right. Uh, He goes on to say, now, does this mean that we just continue in our sin and, and, and then Paul says, no, uh, that's not what it means. So, so don't, don't misunderstand the use of grace. Don't misunderstand how grace is applied. He's saying it's not for the sake that we just go, oh, I got Jesus. I'm going to go send my life away, right? No, he's saying it's not, how, it's not how this works. I've, I've heard it said this way, um, that mercy is not getting what you deserve and grace is receiving what you don't deserve, right? Mercy is, you know, well, you didn't get, you know, you were, you were pardoned, right? And grace is like, now you're getting, you're receiving what you don't deserve in the sense of a blessing. Through the relationship. But I think grace is far more than just that. Uh, grace is more than just being like, all right, I get to go to heaven. You know, mercy is like, I don't have to go to hell, right? It, it's, it's more than that. Grace uh, is, is what reunites us with the Father. Grace reunites us with the Father. See, sin is what separates us, right? Sin is that gap between us and the throne room of heaven. Sin is that gap between us and the Father. It is a separating agent, and and that is why we needed Jesus, because the Father looked down and said, wow, this world needs an answer, and this isn't working. And and he goes, and it was all set up in a plan, and as you you read through prophecies and things of that nature, that, that God was setting it up for a moment when Jesus would come. And so then his grace is poured out more than just a, a covering for our sin, more than just forgiveness and pardoning, but, but grace is a reuniting with the Father. Grace reunites us with the Father. And when you think of it in those terms, it changes our, our understanding of grace. It changes our thoughts about grace as a man. I can now be connected with the Father that I was once separated from. I can now have a relationship. I can now be in communion with the Father because of the grace of Jesus, because of the blood that was poured out. But he goes on a little further and he says, but beyond that grace that was poured out, because of the grace that was poured out, I received the faith and the love that was in Christ Jesus, right? First of all, he says this faith. Remember, this is the same man who was saying, because of your faith in Jesus, I will kill you. Because of your faith in Jesus, I'm gonna force you to renounce him, right? And pushing against him. And now he's going, wow, I encountered Jesus. Now his encounter with Jesus is probably a little different than most of ours in that he was walking down a road and boom, Jesus blinded him with his glory and and he fell to the ground. And then he's like, you know, who are you, Lord? And if I was Jesus after that statement, I would have been like, yes, because he said, who are you, Lord? And if, yes. That's, anyways, that's where my mind goes. And he has, so he has this, anyway. But Jesus isn't nearly as sarcastic or as much of a smart aleck as I am, I'm sure. Uh, which is probably a good thing as well, because the Bible would read differently. But, so he says, you know, he's before him and he has this encounter with God and he has this encounter with, with grace. No, here's the thing that happens when you begin to receive the characteristics and the traits of Jesus, you change. Paul, who was a violent man, right? To me, that almost sounds the opposite of love, right? Uh, violent anger and, 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 and on this mission to rid the world of these people who follow Jesus. And, and Jesus says, here's faith in me. Because faith comes through the Holy Spirit, right? And the word uh, is, is, is pistis, which is, uh, a pers- anyways, I can get off on a tangent in that. And he says, here's this faith that I'm pouring out on you. 
to be built up. It's this persuasion in you. Now you've encountered me. And all of a sudden he receives the faith that was in Jesus. Then he receives this love that was in Jesus. It's probably a major character shift after that moment. Probably a major character shift. We had a student in our, in our youth group when we were first in youth ministry at, at North Place Church. His name is Andrew. And, uh, and Andrew was a great kid. When I first came on staff, Andrew was a freshman in high school who had only been saved for a short while. And so I asked him, like, hey, so what's your story? Uh, how did you get connected here? And he knew this other kid. Um, and I knew the other kid. And I was like, oh, you're friends with him. I was like, I'm not seeing him at church. He's like, no, he only comes when his parents, you know, you know make him. And that's so they force him to come. Uh, a lot of times he's like, but we don't hang out anymore. And I was like, that's probably for the best. Um, so Andrew went to tell me a story. His first Sunday ever in church was he was in eighth grade. In fact, my dad was the pastor at the time at this church. And his very first Sunday, he sat on the back row drunk out of his mind because he had spent the entire night with his friend drinking vodka. And you're like, awesome. Like making great choices there. Yeah. So he comes and he said the whole service, they basically sat on the back row and they were making fun of what was happening. They were making fun of the words being said. But Andrew decided to come back on a Wednesday because his friend was going. He was like, hey, do you, will you at least go to church with me so I don't have to be by myself in the corner? You know, whatever. So he goes to church with him and God begins to work on his heart and begins to, to chip away at the hardening that had taken place in an eighth grader. Fast forward through the summer freshman year of high school, Andrew gives his heart to the Lord and God begins to change who he was. Some of the crazy things about Andrew, there's a lot of crazy things about Andrew, but we won't get into all of his details, but him and his friends used to literally just say, hey, let's go beat that kid up for no, no reason. And this isn't like a, like a hard, like, like, I mean, just your typical, just everyday freshman kid, but just angry for no reason. They would pick a random kid and like three of them would go and like just start punching this kid in the face. I'm not making these things up. And you go, what? what? Like, how do you just decide I'm going to go beat that kid up today? And this is who he was. And they would do, they were just mean to people, just absolutely mean to people. They would pick on people all the time. Their, Their whole goal and intent at school was to embarrass people and to make them feel awful. Fast forward, Andrew gets saved and there is a shift in him that takes place And there is a real love for people in Andrew that prior to salvation, all of his friends were like, what is this? Who are you? You're not the same person anymore. So now Andrew goes out of his way to love on people, to care for people. And and it's just this huge shift that you see from the kid that would go and intentionally find somebody for no reason, with no fault, with, with nothing at all whatsoever. And they would just go and start punching this kid and start beating this kid up to the person that now on the flip side of that is the biggest peacemaker and, and the person that tries to love on people as much as possible, trying to unite people together. And you go, man, there is a huge difference when you experience the love of Jesus. When you encounter the character of Christ, there is a change in who you are. And Andrew started walking with this character of Jesus. And there's ups and downs. He was still a kid. He still made mistakes, but his heart would break when he messed up because he had the grace of God and he had the the love of Jesus. When we were at our worst, Jesus gave us his best. I can't be more thankful the last thing we're going to talk about is this. In the verse 17, uh, the third thing in your notes is this, to God be the glory. 
Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now this would be considered what's called a doxology, right? Where Paul is wrapping up a a section of scripture with giving praise back to the Father, saying, hey, we're going to stop for a moment after what we just said. I'm talking about the cross. I just talked about the grace and the mercy that I've been given. I'm going to stop for a moment and say, thank you, Jesus. So you find that sometimes throughout throughout different writings in scripture where they go, man, think about what was just said. We're going to pause for a moment and and just like praise break, right? And we're just going to say, thank you, Lord, uh, for what you just did. And we're going to glorify you. And I I love what Paul says in in, in that he's he's almost giving uh, um, reasons as to why we should praise him as God, right? He's almost saying, this is who it is that we're praising. Let's stop for a moment. And these are some things as to why we're praising him. We're praising him, yes, for the work that he did on the cross, but we're also praising him simply because of who he is because he deserves it he's worthy of praise the first thing he says is king eternal the king eternal Uh, it simply means the king of all ages king of all time meaning before this moment in this moment and beyond this moment he is king He's been king forever uh, since beginning of all time and even beyond that because he has never, there's never been a moment without him. There has always been God and he's been king since the, you know, forever and he will be king to the end of all time. He is the king eternal. And he's saying, so we're gonna praise him because of this. Uh, you know, we can rest assured that he will remain on the throne. We can rest assured that Jesus uh, is the son of the king who, who is sitting on the throne for all time and for all of eternity and that there is no veto power of any kind. The angels can't get together and take a vote and be like, listen, uh, we've decided you're out. And you'd be like, you know what happened to the last guy that tried that? He's now the devil. So go for it, right? And they go, we're just just kidding. April fools or whatever. Right? And, and the saints in heaven, the people that have gone to be with the Lord, they can't rise up and say, hey, you're out of here. And be like, I'm the one that got you here. You know, you think about it. So there's no veto power. God will always and it will always reign on the throne. He is the king eternal. We can take assurance in that he is always in control. He is always in control. The second he says is this, he is immortal. Immortal. The Greek word for immortal is, is um Athartos, and it means immortal, imperishable, and incorruptible. Which I look at that and I'm like, man, that's that's a really cool thought. Uh, When you look at that, he's immortal, imperishable, and incorruptible. He will always be. Not just on the throne, but he will always exist. He will always be there. There is no end to God. There's no beginning to God. God is always there's so many things in our world that have a shelf life. And so we always do like these food drives and stuff and they're like, bring your, your non-perishables, right? But I feel like even at some point, the non-perishables, I go, that can of corn's 153 years old. I'm not touching it, you know? Like, <laughs> at some point, I gotta feel like something went wrong here and the corn's not good anymore. So God's not perishable. He doesn't have a shelf life. There's not an end to him or a moment in which you go, okay, uh, we've got to be done here. You're, you know, you're waning in, in who you are and you're aging and, and mold is starting to grow. Like it doesn't work that way. He is imperishable. There's nothing that can cause his end. There is nothing that is capable of being the end to God. 
He's incorruptible. He's incorruptible. Think about that. In our world of, of government and politics, wherever you stand in, on either side of the debate, the reality is politicians can become very corrupt very fast. There's a lot of money under the table and a lot of this and that. And again, this is on both sides. So this isn't me picking on any one side of any kind, shape, or form. Because this is the reality of the world we live in. It is corrupted, right? And it says this, that, that this word for immortal is incorruptible. Nobody's coming along and being like, all right, God, listen. I know what I did. And I'm just going to need you to pretend like it didn't happen. And he, and he goes like this. Hey, listen, I sent Jesus for that already. Uh, you just have to say, forgive me. Jesus come into my life and it's taken care of. He's like, I, so, so because of the system that he's put in place, it, it removes all opportunity for corruption. He's like, I've already made a way. There's, there's already been a pardoning for your sin. You just have to step into that grace. It's this incredible thought where you go, man, because he is king eternal. He is immortal. Third, he is invisible. This is a cool thought too that, man, it's, it's always love when, when I'm studying and I come across things and I go, oh my word, that is really cool. I mean, if you just take invisible at face value and be like, yeah, we all get it. You can't see God. It's plain and simple, right? Yeah, he's here. We can't see him, but he's here. We know it and we believe it. But think about this. So he, and, and later in 1 Timothy, Paul writes in, verse six, in chapter 6, verse 16, that God dwells in unapproachable light who no one has seen or can see. So I was thinking about this. Several years ago now, uh, University of California in Berkeley, they created, because they're really smart people out there, they're the ones that invented 3D printing. Um, but then you go beyond that. They also created an, a, the ability to bend light right around the same time they created 3D printing, which obviously 3D printing is you know, the one that took off uh, a little better. But they created the ability to bend light. Now, if you understand how light works, how vision works, light is, is the most essential ingredient in vision, right? Without light, you can't see, right? So you put yourself in a room that is completely blacked out, completely pitch black. There is no ability to see anything, correct? So in essence, what the University of California did was they created an ability to bend the light, which means that now light is not hitting a space or hitting a spot, which causes then there to be a, a, a gap, so to speak. You can't see what is not being lit up. So, so they created essentially like the cloaking device, right? Um, Star Trek kind of stuff, right? So that's where they are. And so they created this whole thing. And it made me think, okay, so God exists in unapproachable light. It's almost as if he's here, yet we're unable to see him because he covers himself with like this cloaking device in a sense that, that the light is bent around him. So he is in this unapproachable light. And I was just like, wow, that is an incredible thought that, that God is here. He is amongst us. He just simply does not allow us to see him. Now we can read about being able to see God and, and, and what happens if he reveals his glory to us so that it wouldn't, we would die. And so he says, for the sake of humanity, I'm gonna cover myself. I'm gonna cloak myself in unapproachable light. And I was like, whoa, so much more than just saying he's invisible. I've seen about that, man. So Paul's saying this, and this one's not in your notes, but he's the only God, the only God. It is this monotheistic idea and understanding that God is the only God. I did a Greek word study on the word only. Do you know what it means? Only. Sometimes that is like the most depth you can find from the word. It's not like 
you know, possibly one of many. No, 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 no. Only. Alone. Singular. One. Only God. There is no other God. There is no God before him. Uh, there is no, no one coming behind him at any point in time. He is the only God. And Paul says, man, that is enough to praise him simply because he alone is God. He alone is the father. He alone is capable of leading us into salvation. It was through him sending his son so that we might have mercy, so that we might have grace. I invite the worship team to join us. I, uh, my hope in this time is that as we approach Thanksgiving, as we get close to this coming Thursday, that we take moments every day this week to thank Jesus for the cross. When we begin to think about the work that was done on the cross, and, 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 and I think Paul did such an incredible job saying, listen, I was a horrible, horrible person. And I think at some, in some extent, we can all relate. We go, man, I was a sinner too. I messed up a bunch. If not for grace, if not for the mercy that I was given, if not for the cross, I wouldn't have salvation. If not for the cross, I wouldn't have forgiveness. If not for the cross, I would still be separated from God. But because of his grace, I'm reunited with the Father. I'm reunited with the Father. And today I wanted to end with taking a moment to say thank you. To say thank you. And the team's going to lead us for a moment and and we're going to worship the Lord. And we're going to say thank you for the cross. Thank you for the work that you did on the cross. Thank you, God, for, for, for pouring out your love for us so that we can have salvation. That we can have salvation. Let's sing. Let's pray. Father, We love you, Lord, and we thank you, God. Lord, we thank you. God, as we approach a season where where we are are pushed into being thankful and and, and we we are, are told culturally to stop and be thankful, God, I pray that, that we stop for a moment on our own and we say, God, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. And by the cross, your grace was poured out. Your mercy was given. Your heart was revealed to us. And Lord, we can stop and thank you. We can thank you. We can thank you, God. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Grace Hill is always about knowing God and growing in God, and we want to hear from you. If you have a prayer request or a question, you can email us at info at gracehill.cc.